2: New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13.
3: Dr. Joseph Keneff couldn't stop thinking about the dial painter and that fateful day at his office. The case had been as mortifying as it was perplexing, an innocent 24-year-old woman named Molly Maggia had displayed all the symptoms of syphilis right until her jawbone had split into pieces at his touch.
2: He'd eventually removed the offending bone and saved it for further research. But after Molly's death in 1923, girls poured in from the United States Radium Corporation facility. Rather than subject the fragile bone to further study, he focused on treating the living, and he shoved Molly's mandible into a drawer.
3: About a year later, Dr. Knieff went through his disorganized filing cabinet, looking for an x-ray. When he finally found it, he made a strange discovery. Something in that drawer had fogged up the film, making it unusable. The dentist had no idea what could have damaged it. He dug
2: through the drawer, seeking the culprit. He found files, pens, paper clips, paperweights, and at the bottom, the fragments of Molly Maggia's
3: jaw. She'd eaten radium every day while working for the United States Radium Corporation. Now, a year after her death, her bone emitted a radioactive signal strong enough to leave an impression on film. Dr. Keneef could only imagine what radium was doing to her surviving co-workers. They were fighting for their lives, while their employers largely ignored them. Most people thought radiation was healthy, and didn't want to hear what Dr. Keneef and the radium girls knew. Radiation could kill. When our bodies fail,
2: we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes.
3: This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly.
2: And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them.
3: As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. This week, in Part 2, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer.
2: You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar.
3: This is our second of two episodes on the Radium Girls, a group of young women who worked with radium-based paint in the early 1920s. One by one, they succumbed to mysterious, incurable illnesses.
2: Last week, we examined how these women desperately sought treatment, eventually learning that radium had somehow rotted their skeletons from the inside. This week, we'll follow their attempts to uncover the truth, what radium does to the body, why it gathers in the bones, and whether radiation poisoning can be cured. In
3: 1925, a team of Harvard professors led by Dr. Cecil Drinker and Dr. Catherine Drinker investigated the U.S. radium dial painting factory. They concluded that radium in the paint was responsible for a rash of employee deaths. They submitted their report to the corporate executives, who then distributed a falsified version. They claimed there was nothing wrong with radium exposure. Furious, the professors published their original report. Their evidence was damning. Radium was toxic.
2: Despite this, the element was sold in large quantities as a purported miracle cure. One popular product was called Radithor, a half-ounce bottle full of water and a small amount of radium. It was advertised as an energy drink, healing aid, and cure for impotence. Demand for radium was so high, companies simply couldn't keep up with demand. At one point during the 1920s, it may have been the most
3: expensive
2: substance
3: on Earth. The public refused to accept that the trendy new product could cause fatal illnesses, and the scientific community was too excited by its medical applications to listen to the drinkers. It was more convenient to ignore the growing death toll at U.S. Radium.
2: When the drinkers had conducted their survey, Dr. Edwin E. Lehman, the company's chief scientist, had shrugged off his severe hand lesions. A few months later... He passed away under mysterious circumstances. The company launched an investigation into his death. It was their first real inquiry, even though dozens of workers had died already. But Dr. Lehman was a well-connected professional and a man, so executives took his passing seriously.
3: His fatal symptoms were different from the female dial painter's. Unlike the so-called radium girls, Dr. Lehman hadn't suffered from necrosis of the jaw. He died of an extraordinarily swift case of anemia.
2: Anemia means that the patient has a low red blood cell count. Red blood cells carry oxygen through the bloodstream, and when there are too few, other cells suffocate and die. Anemia can cause permanent tissue damage, particularly in the patient's
3: brain. It can be fatal, but by the 1920s, physicians could treat anemia, so it was rarely deadly. It also wasn't a quick disease. Many patients lived with the condition for years before they even noticed their symptoms. But strangely, Dr. Lehman's anemia killed him in weeks, and doctors weren't entirely sure why. Perhaps it laid in the condition's origin.
2: Many toxins can cause anemia particularly lead. Bone marrow produces most of our red blood cells, and lead tends to target the bones, as does radium. But radium had been advertised for years as a way to speed up red blood cell
3: production. Dr. Lehman's case was a medical contradiction. Nobody knew how a radium expert had died from a lack of red blood cells. Something wasn't right at the U.S. Radium Corporation.
2: Rumors and suspicions ran all the way through the executive offices. They eventually reached Newark, New Jersey's newly appointed chief medical examiner,
3: Dr. Harrison Martland. He'd been a lieutenant colonel during World War I. After running a military hospital in France, he'd returned to his hometown of Newark, where he'd continued to practice medicine. Dr. Martland had a reputation as a competent and friendly physician, a local dentist had consulted him when trying to diagnose the dial painters. But in Dr. Martland's own words, he'd lost interest in the matter.
2: But as more people got fatally sick, Dr. Martland had to pay attention. When a dial painter named Hazel Coozer died in December 1925, he tried to perform an autopsy, but the woman was buried too quickly.
3: When U.S. Radium's Dr. Lehman passed away... Dr. Martland immediately suspected radium poisoning, but a series of tests uncovered no evidence of the material on the chemist's corpse. The result baffled Dr. Martland. How could a man who spent every day processing radium-based paint have none in his system?
2: Dr. Martland knew his tests couldn't possibly be accurate. He needed the more sensitive instruments used by radium researchers, but there was only one place that had that kind of technology. Dr. Martland would have to descend into the belly of the beast, U.S. Radium Corporation's factory floor.
3: He recruited an Austrian radium expert named Sabin von Sochoki, who happened to be U.S. Radium's co-founder. Although von Sochoki had known that radium could cause burns when he and George Willis had established the company, he'd consistently disregarded safety procedures and common sense. In 1920, the company had faced a minor issue under von
2: Sochoki's leadership. The facility extracted their radium from uranium. The process generated vast amounts of industrial waste that strongly resembled beach sand. They needed to dispose of it And von Sochoki made the most profitable choice he could.
3: The waste was sold to schools, where it was placed in sandboxes. It wasn't long before children complained that their skin was burning. Von Sochoki, the face and voice of his company, proclaimed that the sand was hygienic, more beneficial than the mud of world-renowned curative baths. Co-founders
2: George Willis and Sabin von Sachoki were both kicked out of their own company in 1921, replaced by President Arthur Roeder and Vice President Harold Veit. A while later, Willis was forced to amputate his right thumb due to his exposure to radium. He wrote an article blaming the element, which was widely dismissed as the ravings of a disgruntled ex-employee. Von Sachoki got off more easily, he only lost part of his left
3: finger. But he'd learned his lesson about the dangers of radium. Just five years prior, he'd spearheaded the sale of industrial waste to school children. But now, the embittered scientist leapt at the opportunity to expose its danger.
2: Dr. Harrison Martlin brought von Sachoki back to the factory to properly analyze Dr. Lehman's corpse. Surprisingly, U.S. Radium agreed to let the skeptics in under one caveat. Not a word of their findings could leave the facility.
3: Under that prohibition, the scientists used an instrument called an electrometer, a device used to detect weak electric currents. Radium, like all radioactive elements, is electronically unstable. It constantly emits charged subatomic particles in a process commonly known as radiation. By measuring electricity in the air, the electrometer could effectively test for radioactivity as well.
2: Dr. Martlin discovered that the late chemist's bones did in fact exhibit a current similar to that of radium. The radium hadn't appeared in blood tests because it had all been deposited in the chemist's skeleton.
3: When radium enters the body, about 80% is disposed of in feces and urine. The remaining 20% triggers a case of mistaken identity, a trick that the body plays on itself.
2: Radium and calcium share a similar chemical makeup. When radium enters the bloodstream, the body confuses it with calcium and deposits both elements into the bones. The immune system never recognizes radium as an invasive substance so the element tends to stay put slowly rotting the skeleton and killing the patient from the inside
3: there was no way to remove or flush radium out once it had been deposited in bone dr martland and dr von sachoki realized they couldn't cure the radium girls but they had a responsibility to investigate their case as thoroughly as possible. Perhaps by uncovering the truth, they could prevent further deaths.
2: They kept their promise to U.S. Radium not to share their findings. But if they could replicate the results with another patient, they'd be under no such obligation, and they knew just where to look.
3: Former dial painters Marguerite Carlo and her sister, Sarah Milofer, had been present at U.S. Radium for the drinker's breakthrough inspection. Marguerite's face had been filled with oozing ulcers, and Sarah had needed a cane to walk.
2: The sight of these young women had encouraged the physicians to release a damning article linking radium and corporate neglect with the dial painter's sickness. And their health had only deteriorated further since then.
3: Sarah felt that she couldn't complain about her condition. Sure, she'd lost a lot of weight, but it had been a stressful year. And never mind the pain in her legs, never mind the pain in her teeth and the bleeding in her gums. Her sister was even worse off.
2: Dr. Martlin had seen this before. Sarah ignored her own symptoms, focusing instead on Marguerite. But Sarah had developed anemia and was months overdue for treatment. She soon shared a hospital room with her sister, both of them headed for death. But at least they could use their final days for good. They agreed to let Dr. Martland and Von Sochoki examine them to learn more about radiation poisoning.
3: The scientists no longer had access to an electrometer, but they had to find more evidence to prove radium's deadly nature— Without a moment to waste, they decided to invent brand new tests for Sarah and Marguerite.
2: They developed a new use for the expired air method, originally pioneered in the 18th century. The patient, in this case Sarah, would exhale into a device capable of measuring radon, the byproduct of radium's degeneration. In June 1925, Sarah was bedridden and the mere act of breathing was a great struggle. But she soldiered on. From her deathbed, Sarah became the first dial painter to be tested for radium.
3: The results were predictable. Of course, she had huge amounts in her system. Dr. Lehman had it in his bones, and he'd only been carrying and mixing the stuff. The dial painters had been eating it, day in and day out, for years.
2: On June 18, 1925, two days after her test, Sarah Mylofer passed away at the age of 35. Dr. Martland performed an autopsy right away.
3: During the procedure, he spread some unused x-ray film on Sarah's body. Since x-rays are a form of radiation that leaves an impression on film, he hoped the irradiated bones would do the same. Sure enough, The sheet darkened in the areas exposed to bone fragments. Dr. Martlin proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that radium was everywhere in Sarah's skeleton.
2: As chief medical examiner, Dr. Martlin felt a responsibility to not take sides at this point in his investigation. At least, not publicly. He was exceedingly diplomatic in his statements to the press following Sarah's death. Rather than make any snap judgments, he promised to continue his research, arriving at a conclusion only after painstaking analysis.
3: He told the press he wasn't ready to use a term like commercial radium poisoning. Not yet. But whether he meant to or not, Dr. Martland had coined the phrase, the word was out, radiation was deadly and the U.S. Radium Corporation was killing its employees
2: coming up u.s radium reveals its hidden weapon
0: elevate every morning with tommy john second skin underwear
3: U.S. Radium's chief chemist, Dr. Edwin Lehman, died. His death sparked interest in the peculiar illnesses plaguing U.S. Radium's employees. Dr. Harrison Martland and Dr. Sabin von Suchocki proved that Dr. Lehman and at least two terminally ill dial painters had radium in their bones. Newspapers all around the country covered the story.
2: Following the death of Sarah Milafer the United States Radium Corporation vice president, Harold Veit addressed the eager press. He said, We have engaged persons of the greatest reliability and reputation to conduct an investigation. It's absurd to think the same condition could have caused the deaths of Dr. Lehman and Sarah Milafer
3: For all its faults, U.S. Radium was aware of the danger Radium posed Perhaps its executives had begun to worry about their own safety. They called Dr. Frederick Flynn to offer his opinion on U.S. Radium's culpability.
2: Earlier, Dr. Flynn had examined dial painters at Connecticut's Waterbury Clock Company. He examined several girls who'd fallen ill and had reassured them that their health was fine. He was soon put on Waterbury's
3: payroll. In 1919, Flynn was hired by U.S. Radium to quell concerns that the factory's fumes were toxic. When the dial painters began making news in 1925, he repeated the trick he'd pulled in Waterbury.
2: Dr. Flynn met with and examined dozens of dial painters. Typically, he'd sit with them, run a sample of their blood, and inform them that they were completely healthy. He'd say this even as they lay dying before him. He effectively played the part of a well-meaning physician delivering welcome news.
3: But Dr. Flynn wasn't a physician at all. True, he was a doctor, but he had a PhD, not an MD, and he didn't have a license to practice medicine.
2: It was unacceptable for him to declare the women healthy when they were clearly not. Nevertheless, he gained access to many of his patients by subtly implying that he was a medical doctor. Meanwhile, he gathered information for U.S. radium.
3: His report came out in December 1926. Its title was, Radioactive Material, an Industrial Hazard? The question mark at the end of the title framed the issue as a debatable theory. Flynn reassured his employees that they'd done everything right, and they ignored the article's numerous errors.
2: Not only did his report say that jaw necrosis didn't exist outside of Orange, New Jersey, but he also claimed that its most likely cause was a simple bacterial infection. Never mind that his oral bacteria theory failed to account for the stiffness and joint pain common among dial painters.
3: The lies didn't stop there. Dr. Flynn baldly said he hadn't detected any evidence of radioactivity in any dial painter, despite the extensive investigations he'd performed. Finally, Dr. Flynn reported that an industrial hazard does not exist in the painting of luminous dials.
2: One of the dial painters Dr. Flynn had met was Grace Fryer. He'd measured her blood sample and happily informed the young woman that she seemed to be in better health than he was. That was his line, one he'd used to pacify countless sick women.
3: But Grace wasn't having it. She knew she was dying. She wanted to bring U.S. radium to justice for what they'd done to her and countless others. She'd planned to sue and told the corporation she wouldn't settle for anything less than $5,000, the equivalent of about $72,000 today.
2: U.S. Radium denied the request. Meanwhile, Grace's life fell into a sad routine full of doctors, lies, bills, and wasted time. The situation seemed completely hopeless, especially because the clock was ticking.
3: The statute of limitations for her suit was two years. The whole nightmare had started well before then, with Molly Modge's death back in 1922. After that, it had taken three years for a dial painter to even be tested for radium. Many of the afflicted girls hadn't worked at U.S. Radium for years, not in the least because they'd been bedridden for months. Time was running out.
2: The statute of limitations deterred any lawyer from taking the case. The perceived power of the U.S. Radium Corporation was also a likely factor. What good was scientific evidence in the face of corporate greed?
3: Finally, a recent Harvard Law graduate named Raymond Hurst Berry expressed interest in the suit. Grace was optimistic when the young lawyer agreed to examine the girls knowing that he'd likely find evidence of wrongdoing and push the case forward.
2: In March 1927, the Radium Girls went through yet another intrusive round of poking and prodding. Fortunately, Berry found what he expected to find, evidence of severe radiation poisoning. Finally, the case had some momentum.
3: In the Radium Girls' first hearing, Barry claimed that U.S. Radium had always known their paint was dangerous and had refused to inform their employees. On the strength of his arguments, the case was allowed to go to trial. Grace Fryer, Catherine Schaub, Edna Hussman, and two of Molly Maggia's sisters, Quinta and Albina, were going to see their enemy in court.
2: The newspapers sympathized with their fight. Sensationalist headlines appeared overnight saying, Her body wasting, she sues employer. Woman appears in court with steel frame to hold her erect.
3: To avoid the bad PR and a lengthy court battle, U.S. Radium contacted Grace again to see if she wanted to settle. Grace held all the power in that moment. She could have asked for anything, but that would have meant selling out her fellow dial painters. Instead,
2: Grace denied the settlement. She had a lawyer and expert witnesses. The Radium Girls would have their day in court and a chance to quell the onslaught of misinformation. Her case seemed unbreakable until a trusted
3: ally betrayed her. Dr. Joseph Keneff had treated U.S. Radium's dial painters ever since Molly Maja had come to his attention in 1921, Since then, he'd helped more than 30 women. For his services, he'd accepted smaller payments than usual out of pity. As the legal case ramped up, Dr. Keneef's patience broke. Someone had to pay.
2: So one day, Dr. Keneef approached U.S. Radium. He claimed that he had intimate knowledge of the women's conditions and mental states. As their caretaker, he had significant influence over their decisions. For a fee, he offered to manipulate the dial painters and prevent them from seeking justice.
3: Failing this, he'd testify on behalf of the company. He could say the dial painters suffered from pyrrhea or periodontitis, a particularly destructive gum disease. Or it could be syphilis or a bacterial infection. Whatever U.S. Radium wanted.
2: According to a transcription of this meeting, Dr. Kanif asked for $10,000 in return for his services. If the company refused, he'd instead sue the Radium Girls for their unpaid medical fees. In turn, these fees would be added to their suit against U.S. Radium and the corporation
3: would end up paying him anyway. Dr. Kneef's betrayal of his own patients stunned U.S. Radium President Arthur Roeder, who called his actions immoral. Dr. Kneef left the meeting empty-handed. He'd been one of the first to blame Radium in print, but after this embarrassing episode, he left the story of the Radium Girls altogether.
2: Plaintiff lawyer Raymond Berry probably didn't know why the kindly dentist refused to testify, but it hardly mattered. Surely, Dr. Sabin von Sochoki, co founder turned victim of U.S. radium, would dazzle on the stand.
3: In April 1928, Dr. von Sochoki attended a hearing alongside several key witnesses. The radium girls testified first, sharing the stories that had become front page news. Lip pointing, as a technique to shape the brush, led to ingesting radium, which was deposited in the bones, resulting in a prolonged sickness and a painful death. Grace Fryer also mentioned that during his tenure at the company, Dr. Von Suchoki had warned her against lip pointing.
2: Then Dr. Von Suchoki took the stand. He agreed that he had warned
3: Grace against lip pointing, but not because of the paint. According to him, lip-pointing was dangerous because of the bacteria that could grow on the end of a damp paintbrush. One could get a nasty infection if they weren't careful.
2: After asserting that radium wasn't to blame, Dr. von Sachoki stepped off the stand. To this day, nobody knows what caused his change of heart. He certainly knew of the element's dangers. At the time, he was battling anemia himself and it would claim his life months later.
3: Whatever his motive, Dr. Von Suchoki had damaged the Radium Girls case. Hoping to counteract this betrayal, Barry called his star witness. Newark Chief Medical Examiner, Dr. Harrison Martland, repeated the fact that radiation had saturated the victim's bones. He offered his educated opinion that this had caused their sickness. He had a commanding air, and the reporters in the room took notice.
2: By this point, the press had reported on several of Dr. Martlin's discoveries in their coverage of the radium girls. Building on his findings, scientists unaffiliated with the industry had confirmed that radium could be toxic in high quantities.
3: Marie Curie, who first discovered radium, advocated tirelessly for regulations protecting against radioactivity, as many of her peers and colleagues were diagnosed with anemia and leukemia. She herself would die of radiation exposure just a few years later, in 1934. Meanwhile, the evidence was piling up. Exposure to radium could cause deadly diseases.
2: But U.S. radium continued to insist that wasn't true after a few days of plaintiff testimony they were supposed to call their first witness to the stand however the company claimed that their expert had a prior engagement and would be unable to show up they requested a delay it was granted
3: the next hearing was scheduled for september 24, 1928 five months later Dr. Martland had previously estimated that the girls would be dead within a year. They didn't have the time to wait.
2: After so much fighting, convincing doctors to test them for radium poisoning, and finally seeing their enemy in court, now they might not live to see justice.
3: Coming up, the case concludes and researchers determine how radium can kill. And now, back to the story. In
2: 1928, the legal battle between five dying radium girls and their employer stalled. The case had already been decided in the court of public opinion, but the company could conceivably delay or extend the trial for years.
3: Federal Judge William Clark reached out to the plaintiff's lawyer, Raymond Berry, He had concerns about the timeline. In light of the girl's condition, he suggested that a settlement might be in order.
2: Barry was upset at first, but saw the appeal of a settlement as the days wore on, and he spoke with the former dial painters. The stress of the courtroom could only hurt them. The Radium girls were eager to get on with what remained of their lives.
3: Barry got back to Judge Clark. If U.S. Radium wanted to settle, he'd at least hear them out. A meeting was set almost immediately. The company's first offer was $10,000 to each girl, twice what Grace Fryer had originally asked for. But it wasn't enough. Not after years of medical bills, accusations, and heartache.
2: A few days later, on June 4th, Berry and the U.S. Radium executives had a second meeting in Judge Clark's chambers. It drew the attention of journalists from around the world. Both parties were forced to use back entrances to avoid photographers.
3: Barry spoke on behalf of the girls. They'd settle for $15,000 each up front, followed by $600 a year for as long as they lived. Not only would their medical bills be reimbursed, but any future expenses would also be covered.
2: U.S. Radium agreed to most of these terms, but refused to give more than $10,000 up front. That's the equivalent today of $150,000 at once, then nearly $9,000 per year. The company also had a few conditions. Namely, the women would have to consent to further medical examinations. Their intention was clear. They still hoped to prove once and for all that Radium was not to blame.
3: Despite the intrusive nature of these checkups, the girls weren't concerned that their claims might be disproven. They had evidence on their side. They accepted the settlement.
2: By all accounts, the Radium Girls were satisfied with the outcome. Grace Fryer was happy to get something, but she clearly wished for more money for her friends and family. And she understood that the company hadn't settled out of altruism. They had an ulterior motive.
3: U.S. Radium was never found guilty, so they legally weren't liable for poisoning the Radium Girls. If U.S. Radium wasn't liable, then Radium itself wasn't liable either. The industry could continue as normal.
2: Another company called Radium Dial had operated out of Ottawa, Illinois since the end of the Great War. It had once been a fun place to work. Now Dial painters felt unwell. They reported pain in the teeth and jaws, just like the girls in the newspaper.
3: The next few years at Radium Dial were like a replay of the U.S. radium case. Once again, five women sued their former employer. This time, they won their case and closed the factory. Their story made front pages, further cementing the idea that radium was dangerous. The toxic element was losing popularity every day.
2: Americans witnessed the poisonous effects of radium in their own homes as their once-beloved products turned against them. In 1931, a man lost his jaw after nearly a decade of drinking radium water several times a day. The product, called Radithor, was quickly pulled from the shelves and the man died not long after. His death ruled a case of acute radiation syndrome.
3: The rest of the 1930s would see a long overdue crackdown on radium-based medication. Radium chocolate and radium bread disappeared from the shelves. Toys and makeup containing radium didn't sell, and the companies that made them went bankrupt.
2: Fortunately, many dial painters lived to see radium fall out of public favor. Catherine Schaub survived five years after her settlement.
3: As the radium continued to poison her knee, a tumor expanded to 50 centimeters, meaning it was bigger than a bowling pin. Catherine wanted the leg amputated, but her physicians advised against it. It would only delay the inevitable.
2: She passed away in February 1933. Grace Fryer followed her not long after. Their death certificates said they died of industrial poisoning. In their wake, Molly Maj's death certificate was updated, removing the syphilis diagnosis.
3: Their death served as stark testimony to radium's dangers. But scientists still didn't understand how the former health supplement could be so toxic. In
2: 1940, the United States Navy hired Dr. Robley Evans to investigate a human being's tolerance for radium. Evans recruited Dr. Martlin to aid him in his study.
3: They discovered that the maximum safe radium dosage for humans is 0.1 microgram. If you cut a $1 bill into a million equal pieces, one of those pieces would weigh 0.1 microgram. Dial painters had averaged between 0.7 and 23 micrograms, more than 200 times the minimum safe dose.
2: But even Evans and Martlin's findings, along with the press and the court cases couldn't kill the radium industry. World War II spawned a new wave of radioactive fever, the atomic age. Radium was no longer found in food and drugs, but the power of nuclear weaponry gripped the American imagination. Radioactivity became a hot commodity once again.
3: The U.S. Radium Corporation was on the verge of bankruptcy after their settlement with the Radium Girls. But in 1942, they reached an all-time peak of 1,000 employees working in factories across the country. In 1957, the Environmental Protection Agency investigated the soil and air around the New Jersey plant for radiation. They still didn't stop using radium in their paint until 1968.
2: Finally, in 2006, 135,000 tons of irradiated soil were removed from the residential area where the New Jersey factory had once stood. There's no telling how many people suffered from their negligence in the meantime.
3: Scientists like Navy Dr. Robley Evans, Newark Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Harrison Martland and Nobel Prize winner Marie Curie had gathered information about radium and radioactivity since its discovery in 1898. During World War II, J. Robert Oppenheimer and his team unlocked the secrets of the atom. Today, scientists understand radiation only too well.
2: Even in its most stable form, radium constantly emits low-charged electronic particles as it decays. This discharge is known as radiation. There are three distinct kinds of radiation. Alpha particles can carry a lot of energy, but luckily they lose their charge as soon as they hit our outer layer of dead skin.
3: Beta particles are far from harmless. They can shoot through our protective layer of skin and will cause burns if they're applied directly to the body or ingested.
2: Gamma rays are the third and deadliest form of radiation. These rays can completely penetrate the human body, leaving behind charged ions. As MIT's Radiation Protection Committee member Peter Deeden explained, you literally get a particle, an energy packet, moving through your cells and tissues.
3: Ironically, most of the illness the radium girls suffered was caused by alpha particles, Because they ate the radium paint, these particles bypassed the skin and damaged their cells from the inside. It was just one more instance where radiation behaved differently from the scientific understanding at the time.
2: Today, we know there are thousands of ways radiation can affect a person. In very low doses, it's harmless. In fact, it's always present in sunlight and in the air we breathe. But in a more concentrated form, it can cause cells to mutate and divide rapidly, a condition called cancer. A higher dose can trigger radiation poisoning, in which a person's cells and DNA mutate so severely they die. Symptoms of radiation poisoning include nausea, hair loss,
3: and swollen tissues. But radiation can have health benefits as well. The companies that marketed radium as a health substance weren't entirely in the wrong. In the early 1900s, radiation was used to treat pneumonia. Today, researchers are exploring radium remedies for diabetes and kidney disease. So radiation exposure isn't black and white. It's not entirely healthy or entirely dangerous. That's
2: why it took so long for the radium girls to be diagnosed and why it took even longer for them to receive justice. It's why the radium industry was allowed to continue for as long as it did. Radium was once the most valuable substance in the world and a potential miracle drug. Nobody wanted to believe it was toxic. It took dozens of deaths for anyone to accept the evidence that was right before their eyes. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on the Radium Girls, amongst the many sources we used, we found Radium Girls Women and Industrial Reform, 1910-1935, by Claudia Clark, extremely helpful to our research.
3: You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like medical mysteries for
3: free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker to stream medical mysteries on Spotify. Just open the app and type medical mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a podcast studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler Sound designed by Nick Johnson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Eric Stankey with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.